Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Revelation chapter 11. I think it was D.A. Carson who said that chapter 11 is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation to interpret. So, obviously, we want to be extraordinarily cautious here. Good Christian folks who take the Bible seriously will disagree here as to how this chapter should be understood. Now, all I can do, obviously, is tell you what I see and what I have distilled from the numerous readings of the book and from the several commentaries that I have consulted. The chapter begins with a very interesting vision wherein John is commanded to take up a measuring rod in order to measure the temple of God. Let me read to you the first three verses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations." And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. All right, well, first of all, when you read that, if you're a Bible reader, your mind immediately jumps back to Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 2 to 3, which says, In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. And set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. And then, of course, you know, the prophet Ezekiel is engaged in an extensive act of measuring and surveying the idealized temple of God. So clearly, this vision in Revelation 11 is drawing on that imagery from Ezekiel chapter 40. In Ezekiel 40, as I mentioned, the prophet is measuring the idealized temple of God. Here in Revelation 11, most commentators understand the measuring to have to do with the people of God, who are now, in the New Testament, the temple of the living God, as per 1 Corinthians 3.16. So, if that understanding is correct, then John is being asked to measure the people of God, but not explicitly, but not the outer court, which is to be trampled on by the nations. So this may mean that John is to observe the growing covenant community while also observing that there is an outer fringe that appears to be the church, but is actually made up of counterfeit believers who will not be revealed as such until some time later. You seen this? This vision seems to be saying, see the church, see the fringe, know the difference. Now, the next part of the vision involves the two witnesses mentioned in verse 3, who will prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. That they are dressed in sackcloth indicates that their message is a call to repentance. The 1,260 days is equal to the 42 months of verse 2, according to the Jewish lunar calendar. 
Now, that period of time was symbolic in first century Judaism for the uprising of the Maccabees in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a time when the Jews were being pressured to adopt Greek culture. Antiochus Epiphanes even went so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. It it was a time when the people of God were being violently defiled and yet were miraculously preserved. All right, so that's the history behind the symbol. But what does the symbol mean? Now, some people say that it stands for the latter half of the Great Tribulation. 1,260 days is also three and a half years. So if that is right, then what we have is a long general tribulation that stretches from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And then near the end of that, we have a shorter great tribulation. Some say of seven years. Some say of of something less than 40 years or one generation. Others simply that it is a short and indeterminate time. But a great tribulation of which this then might be understood as the latter half. The last half of the home stretch. Some say that is what this symbol refers to. Others say that it intends to refer to the entire church age. They would say that the three and a half years of the Maccabean revolt is symbolic for the entire church age. We are always under pressure to conform to the world. The church is always in danger of defilement. And through it all, God's true people are preserved and empowered to witness. Some say that. As I said, I want to be very cautious, very humble here, because so many good people hold both views with conviction. Now, one way or the other, this is a picture of the church under pressure to conform. But this is also a picture of the church empowered to proclaim. And that takes us to the two witnesses. They are described using language that is intended to remind us of Moses and Elijah. They can summon plagues like Moses in the Exodus. They can call down fire from heaven like Elijah the prophet. Now, again, commentators differ here as to the precise identification of these characters. Some scholars expect two end times figures who will have Old Testament-like spiritual powers. Others understand this as referring to the church as a whole. The two witnesses thus represent the fully equipped church operating in the power of Moses and Elijah. They will speak in humility and lowliness and call people to repentance. Now, on measure, I think it is slightly preferable to think of the two witnesses as referring to the church collectively, because the word for body in verse 8, as in their dead body will lie in the streets, is singular rather than plural. And, And this more naturally would refer to the church, the body of Christ, than to the bodies of two actual persons. Therefore, it appears that the church is killed or silenced near the end of this vision near the end of the tribulation. And the culture celebrates all around the world only to see the church revived or resurrected and lifted up into glory. This event, therefore, marks the close of the vision and corresponds to the end of the church age. So having said all that, let's read it. Let's read verses 4 to 14. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, you probably recognize that from Zechariah. But you, 
you probably also recognize that that symbolism from Zechariah is also kind of intertwining here with the symbolism that we saw already in the first three chapters of Revelation. Do you remember in that vision, the churches were symbolized by seven lampstands. But, but you'll also recall that only two of those lampstands, only two of those churches were giving pure testimony to the Lord. Only two were entirely commended, and those two were giving their testimony under tremendous pressure and duress. So it may be that what we're seeing here is the witness of the prevailing church. Remember in the story, we were told to see the church, see the fringe, and know the difference. And so perhaps that's what we're being reminded of here. Let's, let's jump back into the text at verse 5, and I'll, I'll try to read a bigger chunk this time. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies. Now in English, we translate their dead bodies in the plural. But as I mentioned, in Greek, it's singular. It's their dead body. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Here again, good folks disagree. Some folks believe that that great city is, in fact, Jerusalem. And if you believe that there are two actual witnesses, then you expect them to be killed in actual Jerusalem. But it would be difficult to think of how that could be seen or how people in the first century could even imagine that that would be seen by all peoples everywhere around the earth. But again, if we think of this as referring to the church, their dead body, the body of Christ, the church, as being killed, persecuted, finally put down near the end of the Great Tribulation, then it's easy to understand how people of every tribe, tongue, and nation could look upon their dead body. In that case, the great city is now symbolic simply for the world. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, of that there's no doubt, but he was also crucified in the world in rebellion against God. And again, I'm, I'm not aware that Jerusalem is ever referred to as Egypt, right? I mean, it's not just Jerusalem that's referred to, it's Sodom and Egypt, meaning collectively the world in rebellion against God, I should think. And so we carry on in verse 9, for three and a half days... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
So once again, this vision seems to take us right to the end of the frame. If we're right in understanding the dead body being the persecuted and, and, and decimated church, then what can their resuscitation refer to but the return of Christ and the resurrection of God's people, right? This is the end. So we're not surprised at all to see a great earthquake and to hear terrified people giving glory to God. That's what happens at the end. At the end, Jesus returns, his people are raised, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. So this is the end. This is another overlapping vision that tells us about the time between the comings of the Lord. The last line in the vision tells us that we are bumping right up against the frame here. The second woe is past. The third woe is soon to come. The third woe is the final judgment. And that's what we see next. Let's start reading again at verse 15, and we'll read right through to the end of the chapter. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That, my friends, is the final judgment. It is reward for the people of God. It is wrath for all others. Christ has taken his great power and has begun to rule. This is the end. And this is the beginning. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.